Genesis. Oh, helps if I put my stuff where it belongs, doesn't it? Uh, we're in uh, the end of 45, and we're going to pick up um, into 46. So, starting in verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came in the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your fathers. Sorry, father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out for Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. I'm not going to read through all of the genealogical stuff, but here we have down in verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 people in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, the main promise of Scripture is that you would be our God and that we would be your people. From the beginning to the end, uh, the Bible is about this promise. And our brother Paul reminds us that because we have this great and precious promise, we are to purify ourselves. And so in light of that, I ask that you would sanctify us this morning by the truth, that we would cling to these promises in the shifting sands of our circumstances. And we ask this through Christ, our Savior. Amen. It had been years since Mama left the house. Mama, from the kid's perspective, was sort of an embarrassment because she was morbidly obese. No longer should she, could she even go up the stairs into her bedroom. She had basically made the living room her room. She didn't do any more work, but the kids who, the, who were there uh, would take care of everything. They did the laundry, they did the cooking, they did the cleaning, they did all of it, except for one child, the youngest child, Arnie. His brother Gilbert 
took advantage of the situation a little bit. He would offer the curious children a chance to peek through the window to see Mom, who was legendary. Everything changed one day. Arnie, who was mentally retarded, was adventurous and often enjoyed climbing up the water tower in the town. But one day, the officials had gotten so sick of rescuing him, from their perspective, from the water tower that they threw him into jail. And when Mama received news that Arnie, her precious son, was in jail, there was nothing that could stop her. She got out of her bed and left the house for the first time in years. And it was sort of a mortifying experience for her children because now Mama is there for everyone to see. But she said, let my son go. I must see my son. Just a movie. What's eating Gilbert Grape? But it stands out to me as something. Because her son was in trouble and she rose. She did what you wouldn't expect her to do in that particular circumstance. Here we see Jacob, whose son is not in trouble, but who he has, he has not seen his son for decades. And there is nothing that will stop him from going to see his son one last time. Our big idea this morning is that God is present to keep his promises in the chaos of life. And we're sort of emerging, you know, we're we're entering back into the story again. The chaos that was there at that particular time was a famine that had already gone on two years and was going to go on five more years. The chaos of a family that had been destroyed by sin, and yet God is going to keep his promises in the midst of all of that. God changes our circumstances while he keeps the covenant. We can't avoid the reality of what lies behind the story. And and as as Genesis unfolds, it's the the unfolding of these promises of God that that are found in God's covenant. And if we miss that, we completely misinterpret everything that goes on in this passage. We see here that the brothers have arrived back in Canaan. They've arrived at peace. They listened to their brother. Okay, they didn't argue with one another. They didn't, you know, cast blame upon one another uh, of what happened to Joseph. But they arrive united, and then they drop the bombshell on their dad. Joseph is alive, and he is the ruler over all Egypt. Now, think about that for a second. Imagine that you are Jacob. You mourned bitterly at the news that your son had been killed. I mean, it wasn't just a, you know, a thought, well, we think he, dis- you know, he disappeared. We don't know what happened to him. They brought you his coat covered in blood. For 20 years, you believe he is dead. And now you come to find out that not only is he alive, but he is the most powerful man in your part of the world. That's shocking. No wonder Jacob's heart was numb. No wonder he was in shock. No wonder he was in disbelief. Amy and I, while the kids are resting, are catching up on our TV shows that we DVR'd. And there's one with uh, one of the main characters. Um, she was adopted, and she found out 
that her real mother, her bio mom, had just moved into town. But the thing was, her bio mom thought she had died. The father had lied to her and said that she had died. Imagine the surprise that you actually have a daughter that you thought was dead for 30 years. That's Jacob. Shock. Dismay. And so the brothers essentially have to prove to him, and unfortunately they have, you know, they bring the words of this man, and not only that, but they bring the wagons, and they bring all of the things that, that Joseph had given to them. See, we're gonna, we can go to Egypt. We can stay alive in the midst of this famine. And so Jacob is, is convinced by the proofs that they bring of Joseph's existence. But there are many unanswered questions. In a sense, I mean, I have unanswered questions. What did they tell him? Did they say more than just he's alive? Did they own up to what they did? Or did they kind of leave that sort of hanging in the background? Maybe Joseph will explain that to, to uh, Jacob one day, but we're, we're going to bring the good news. And I'm always reminded of that scene in Monty Python, the Holy Grail, when Sir Lancelot breaks into the castle and kills half of the wedding party, and the father says, let's not quibble about who killed who. This is a happy occasion. Okay, Don't, don't spoil the, the joy of, of Jacob hearing that his son is alive with the bad news of how he thought his son was dead. Okay, the lies, the deceit, the selling into slavery. It's a happy sort of occasion. Jacob is eager to see Joseph. He wants to see him before he dies, which is a legitimate thing. He's really old. But in order to go see his son, he must leave the promised land. And so a question should arise in our minds. His attitude is similar to that of Mama in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. I guess I should say Mama Grape. But that sounds weird, doesn't it? <laughs> Mama Grape. Okay. It's similar to, you know, as soon as our kids got their visas. Amy's got her, her travel arrangements. She's gone. She's, I'm going to go and I'm going to get my kids. I'm not going to sit around and wait for all of these other things to happen. I'm not going to you know, be leisurely in my pursuit. They're, they're our kids. We want them. And so J- Jacob is similar to that. He's not going to, uh, you know, I'll go in a couple months. He's gone. They pack up everything they have, sort of like the Beverly Hillbillies, and they go. Okay? Too much pop culture. I'm sorry. <laughs> all right. But see, here's part of the problem. The history of his family. Abraham, his grandfather, if you might remember, was kicked out of Egypt because he had deceived the Pharaoh concerning the the relationship with Sarah. So Abraham was told, don't ever come back. So if he's found out to be the son of Abraham, who knows what might happen? Who knows what records might have been kept uh, when he gets to the border? But then there's also... Isaac. Genesis 26, we read that there there was a famine at that particular time, and the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall give you. So, Isaac was prohibited specifically by God from going down into Egypt in a time of famine. 
And so we've got some of that kind of hanging on to make us have some questions about whether or not Jacob himself ought to go down into Egypt. And so as he's leaving the land, he comes to Beersheba, which is the border of the promised land. And it is there that he begins to worship just like his father's. Isaac worshipped there. Abraham worshipped there. This is the first time that we see Jacob worshipping in that particular place. But before he leaves the land, he wants to worship. And it is there that God appears to him in a series of night visions. And one of the things he says is, Do not be afraid to go. That, In other words, God's command to Isaac was not binding on Jacob. Instead, we see that God's covenant promise to Abraham, which we read uh, earlier this morning, with the reality that they were going to go into another land and they were going to be oppressed, that is about to be fulfilled in the life of Israel. But we're struck with the the reality that God's providence doesn't always make sense to us. That God would call one person to something and another person to something completely different. In other words, Isaac can't go, Jacob can. We see this in Acts 16. Okay? Acts 16. They went throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Talk about Paul and his missionary team. God said, basically, don't go to Asia. Later in that same chapter, we see, and Paul had seen the vision of the man in Macedonia. Immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, does this mean that God never wanted anybody ever to go to Asia and preach the gospel? No. All it means is that he didn't want Paul to go to Asia at that particular time to preach the gospel. At that point in time, he wanted Paul to go to Macedonia, not Asia. There are some commands of God that are simil- that are not moral in, their, in, in and of themselves. For instance, if I tell my children to put on their coat, okay, there's nothing right or wrong about putting on your coat, not putting on your coat. What is right and wrong is whether or not you obey mom or dad. That's where the morality of it all comes in. And so it would be disobedient for Paul to press on into Asia or for Paul to not go to Macedonia. Okay, That would be wrong, but it's because God commanded him to do that. It's not the actual action. It's not like stealing, adultery, murder. Always wrong. God's not going to command you to do any of those things. In fact, he prohibits us from doing those things. So do you catch the difference in, in what we're trying to say here? Okay. And so that sometimes our circumstances, we have to sort out what the will of God is in the midst of our circumstances. It's vital as a result that we know the flow of the story of redemption in the Scriptures. It is vital that we know the promises that are found in the Scriptures. It is vital that we know the commands that are found 
in the Scriptures, so that when we look at our circumstances, we can begin through the power of the Spirit, you know, working through the Word of God to begin to begin to know what we should do in these circumstances. Because what Jacob was to do was not the same as what Isaac was to do. But God had said, this is the time that I am going to fulfill this promise that I made to your grandfather, Abraham. This is why Sinclair Ferguson writes, The chief need we have, therefore, is that of increased familiarity with and sensitivity to the wisdom of his word. We need to be fully grounded in the Scriptures so that when our circumstances change, which they will, they are always changing. Where am I going to work? Should I move here or not move here? How should I get, you know, who should I marry? How many kids should we have? All of those sorts of things. By the way, I've decided my quiver is four. Okay, one of, the, one of the Psalms talks about God filling your quiver. My quiver has four. It's full. No more. I'm done. Unless God sovereignly says I'm not. Um, <laughs> which is always a possibility. It'll be a costly possibility, but nonetheless. Um, you know, so as we... In, encounter our circumstances, we need to bring the truth of Scripture to bear on them so that we make good and wise decisions. But if we're ignorant of the Scriptures, guess what? We're not going to make wise choices. And so the, the shifting sands of circumstances are directed by God Himself to fulfill His purposes. Secondly, God confirms the covenant in the midst of these changing circumstances. There's a big shift in the circumstances of the plan, and Jacob needs reassurance. And God provides this reassurance to him through this night vision at Beersheba. And it's interesting that God specifically reveals himself to him as, I am the God of your father. He's, He's invoking that covenant aspect Okay? I'm the same God who revealed himself to your father, who actually is the same one who revealed himself to your grandfather, and I gave this covenant to your grandfather. I repeated this covenant to your father, Isaac, and I've given it to you as you remember, Isaac. Uh, Jacob, sorry, too many patriarchs floating around in here. All right. This is the God, the one who said, I will be your God and the God of your children. He is the one who reveals himself once again to Isaac, this time at Beersheba. It's important we think of that in light of the history of Israel that's coming. Because who is the God that reveals himself to Moses? In Exodus 3, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face and was afraid to look at God. 
This God who works covenantally through generations is the one who reveals himself. And he's going to, he's going to make essentially three promises. There's a fourth one that is important. Okay. But three major promises that are applicable to us as well as to Isaac, uh, Jacob. I will go with you is the very first thing he promises. Okay. Nope. Wrong. Goofed. I will make you into a great nation. That's the first promise. Okay? This is the time in which God is going to fulfill this promise that was originally given to Abraham in Genesis 12. Now is the time that him going into Egypt is not a bad thing, but that is the place, that is sort of the incubator, that is the nursery room, however you want to put it, in which God will take this family and change them into a nation, and not just a small nation, but a great nation. These are the circumstances in which God is going to fulfill his plan. God has not given up on his promise to Abraham and therefore his promise to Isaac. Israel's presence, as they read this, either about to leave Egypt or having left Egypt and are wandering in the wilderness, they need to know that their presence in Egypt was not a mistake. They need to know it was not merely accidental. It was not circumstantial. It was not mere happenstance. But it was, a, it was according to the will and providence of God. We exist where we exist according to the will and providence of God. It might be easy to say that you're here because the U.S. Air Force sent you to Tucson. Okay? And from a human perspective, they did send him to Tucson. Why? Because of the will and providence of God. Why is it that any of you are here? It's the same thing. Whether you got here by a job transfer, I don't know how many terms I, times I heard, well, um, I came to school at the U of A and I stayed. Okay? By the will and the providence of God. Huh? And some of you, you mar- well, those of you who are married, you're married to that person by the will and providence of God. Okay, Whether you met them at church, like those people talking back there, uh, whether you met them you know, across a different continent, Okay, through the, the work of their, their fathers to see if there's an appropriate match. Whether you're introduced by friends, though you live, you know, over a thousand miles away, like Amy or I, or whether you went back home for vacation and some people in the church, she introduced you to this young woman, you said, hey, that's kind of cool. <laughs> or whether you're still waiting. By the will and the providence of God. The same God who said, I will make you into a great nation, also said, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not withstand it. So he's into building things. He's in, he was first into building a nation, and now he's into building a church from that nation. The second promise, which I mentioned first inadvertently, was I will go with you. 
God's presence with Jacob and with Joseph and the rest of Israel is not tied to the promised land. This is going to be incredibly important later on in the history of Israel when they go into Babylon. Okay, they need to, God is not trapped in the geographic boundaries that are the nation of Israel. He is the God of everything, and he is with us no matter where we go, and he promises specifically to go with them. Now, as a, a former dispensationalist, okay, and as I read books, and somehow in baptism, this always comes up, the question of, of baptism. When, when, when Baptists read, or many Baptists, I shouldn't lump them all into one category, when they read Genesis 17, what they seem to focus on is the land in, the, in there. But there's a promise that I will be your God and you will be my people. And as we look at the whole of Scripture, what we find is that is the main promise that we find in Genesis 17. Okay? The land is essentially circumstantial. It's not the big deal. The big deal is, I'm your God, you're my people. And the rest of Scripture, as I've mentioned before, is sort of how that unfolds. He's still their God when they're in Egypt as slaves. He's still their God when they're exiles in Babylon. He's still our God no matter where we happen to be. Every time I try to get closer to home, God moves me farther away. He's still my God wherever I am. He's still with me wherever I am. God will bless them. He will multiply them precisely because he is with them. He has not abandoned them. Now, they're going to think he has, but he hasn't. Third promise, I will bring you up again. Okay, Their stay in Egypt is temporary. It is not permanent. Moses essentially had to convince the Israelites of this. You know, not just when they were there, because, you know, when he tried to, when he went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and Pharaoh said, uh-uh-uh, I'm making it worse for them. A lot of them were like, just leave it alone, Moses, okay? You're bringing us grief that we don't want. Just go away. But no. The promise of God was going to be fulfilled. And then when when they get out, and whenever, you know, there we have... Here comes the, the armies of Pharaoh. Why didn't you just leave, it, leave us there? Now we're going to die out here. No. I'm with you. I'm, gonna, I'm bringing you back to where I promised I would bring you. And he preserved them. Then again, in the wilderness, what is it? Why did you bring us out here to die? Couldn't we have, weren't there graves in Egypt for us? You know, they're complaining again. But God, what? He brought them to where he, he fulfilled the promise that he gave to Jacob. Israel needed to be reminded of God's promise. Not because they wanted it to come true, but because they didn't want it to come true. Because it was the hard road, not the easy road. Israel was not to see the changing circumstances as abandonment, but fulfillment. We see this again in, 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 the, in, Genesis, not in, Genesis, in the New Testament, particularly in the letter to the Galatians. Israel 
was not to see the changing, you know, the inclusion of the Gentiles into Israel, Romans uh, 9 through 11, okay? You know, they would recognize this as the actual fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham, which is exactly where Paul goes in Galatians. You're not, you're sons of Abraham, he says. The, God has kept his promise to you as sons of Abraham. You've been brought into that covenant. Okay, Paul says there. And the covenant and its promises have been sealed in the blood of Jesus. And so we tend to focus on our circumstances, but God wants to, us to focus upon his covenant by which he regulates our relationship. The circumstances are always going to change, but the covenant didn't. Okay? And so the covenant allows us to see God's eternal purposes in our shifting circumstances. Thirdly, lastly, we are to trust God in the future because of his past faithfulness. The question that I'm sure would come to the mind of Jacob would could God keep these promises? Now, he also had prior experience. God kept his promise to bring him back out of, um, away from the clutches of Laban. Okay? He returned home. And so, again, this is the idea of if you're Jacob, God's fulfilled his promises. Why does he want me to leave now? What's going on? Is, is God, has God not able to fulfill his promise to me at this point in time? In Moses, through this genealogical section, is subtly telling us, yes, he's able to keep his promises. Because Moses lays out the male children and grandchildren of Jacob. He wants to remind us of how God has already blessed this one man. This one man who left the promised land to go into Haran, who came back as 14. And who, according to this, 70 are now leaving the promised land. He's gone in that time, intervening time from when he came back into the promised land to now when he's leaving for this, this period of time, he's gone from 14 to 70. That's only including the male children, not their wives, and two of the daughters. Now, that's, there's got to be more daughters in there. Because not every family can be like my mom's family. You know, she was the oldest. She was the only girl. She had eight brothers. Statistically, highly unlikely. Okay? There probably were more daughters involved here. Um, but nonetheless, 70 people. I'm reminded of Amy's family. You know? Uh, her mom and dad get married. Uh, they're not Christians. Uh, they become converted. They are struggling to have children, and all of a sudden, boom, they're six. You know, and then those kids get married, and, and I came, I lost track of how many grandchildren it is now. Is it eighteen? Yeah, we're up to eighteen after this week. Okay, and there might be more on the way. Not in my family, however. Okay, <clears throat> Richie might still have some kids. Um, or more kids, as far as I know. So, you know, sort of like two to eight to, 
I don't want to do all the math right now on the top of my head. I'll get it wrong. But the genealogy also shows us that the sisters, Leah and Rachel, were far more fruitful than their con- the concubines. The, remember, the, they gave their, their nurses to uh, Jacob. They were far more fruitful than their concubines. This is a small thing, but I think it reaffirms to us that marriage matters. At least it should reaffirm this to us. We see that God did keep his promise. In Ephesians 1, uh, sorry, not Ephesians, Exodus 1, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That should remind us of some, a couple of things, one of which is Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it and rule it. Okay, that should, that should go bing, bing, bing. Okay, but also promise that was given to Abraham, which is reiterated to Isaac and then to Jacob, I'm going to make you a great nation. And Exodus 1 says, it happened, despite the oppression of the Egyptians, it happened. And so Israel needs to read this and and know that God was faithful to them. And that he will still be faithful as they encounter the obstacles that are to come as they go into that promised land. Okay? So what about us? Oftentimes we are filled with fear for the future. Precisely because we forget God's faithfulness in the past. In other words... We're a lot like Israel, which makes sense because we are Israel. (laughs) We forget how faithful God is. Whether it's something like adoption, you know, and me forgetting how faithful God was when we adopted Eli and that being afraid that God would not be faithful as we adopted these kids, you know. But think about this in terms of the life of this church. We were supposed to have the guy come and do the survey this week, and he he overextended himself and wasn't able to make it. But, you know, I know in the back of some of your minds, so maybe I think in the back of some of your minds, is the idea that, oh, yeah, we talked about this at the congregational meeting. They're supposed to be working on a site plan. Ooh. Some of you may not be excited about that. That may fill you with a little bit of fear. Okay? Doesn't fill Ken with fear. Ken is full of faith. Okay? Um, and you know, I was talking with somebody, and they, they shared me, uh, with me a little bit of the history of this church, and that back in the early 90s, there was an elder who left this church. And when he left this church, he said, You guys are not going to exist in a few years. been 20 years. God has been faithful. Hasn't been easy. There have been pastoral searches and uh, pastoral troubles. <laughs> okay? There's been splits. There have been trials and hardships. But guess what? God has been faithful. Still here. Still worshiping. We need to remember that. 
as we think about obstacles that might be presenting themselves to us in the future so that we don't just kind of, you know, be tempted to do what the Israelites did and think, you know, it was just better if we just died in Egypt. Why do we have to go out here and take a risk and take a chance? He's going to keep us in the future. He's going to use the godly leadership that this church has to lead and guide this church into whatever future it has. I don't want you to trust the session. I want you to trust God. I'm saying this because I think that's part of the message of this text. It's not that I've got an agenda, I don't think. Okay? But I couldn't help but think of this as I came to this text. That that was the message to Israel, and that is the message to us. God's past faithfulness is something that we need to bank on when we look to the future. Or we will be overcome with fear with obstacles that may reveal themselves. So, and the most important thing, is I love this, what, what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 1. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ Jesus. So all of the promises of God found in the, in the covenants, you know, progressively revealed in the Old Testament, Paul is basically saying, are all summed up and find their yes in Jesus. He's the one we have to look to. Not me, not the session, not anyone else. Christ. Whose blood is the guarantee of all God's promises, including those promises that we find like at the end of uh, Matthew. I will never forsake you nor leave you. That promise that I will build my church. All of these kinds of promises concerning our sanctification, our justification, the growth of his body around the world, all of that has the stamp of yes in the blood of Jesus. Approved. Now, I've never seen that. Like you know, if you apply for a loan or something, I've never seen the big stamp <laughs> approved, but it happens <laughs> somewhere in some office. All stamped, approved by the blood of Christ. So, and so the, the shifting sands of circumstances can be deceptive. They can be used to deceive us. Satan, our sinful nature, used them to discourage us, to frighten us. We're tempted to think that God has somehow failed, that God has somehow forgotten us, but we need to kind of pull back and see them within the bigger picture of redemptive history. God is, this is what God is doing for Jacob in this text, in the night visions. He's, he's, allowed, he's pulling back and putting it back within the context of the covenant. God does this for us through the Scriptures. 
we get the bigger picture of what's going on in here. Are we paying attention? Are we ready to follow God into the unexpected? Let's pray. Father, we are um, far more comfortable with the God who does what we want than the God that we find in Scriptures who accomplishes his own purpose. And it always doesn't always take a straight line. And it's hard to follow you. We can't conceive, I think, at times how hard it was for Abraham to follow you. How hard it was for Jacob to follow you. And yet you call us into similar sorts of circumstances where we do not know the points in between, but we know the destination. Help us to trust you and to obey you follow you. We thank you that you don't not only gave us the scriptures, but you give us your spirit. That all who are in Christ are in Christ because of the, the spirit. And we ask that that spirit would lead us. That we would be sensitive uh, to the promptings of the spirit as we read the scriptures. That we would know what to do in the midst of our circumstances. So that we might honor you and please you, trust you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.